you would open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 7 again. John chapter 7. Last week we saw that the Lord Jesus Christ had gone up to the Feast of Booths. And everyone was looking for him. Especially the Jews. Because they wanted to lynch him. And everyone is talking about the Lord Jesus. But no one's talking about him openly. Either for him or against him. Because we're told for the fear of the Jews. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ went up to this feast in the middle of the feast, we're told, because he knew the Jews were plotting to kill him. And if he had gone up early with the very first pilgrims going into Jerusalem, they would have had ample opportunity. There wouldn't be much of a problem. They could grab him, they could try him, and then they could drag him outside of town and stone him like they had done to Stephen, well, like they will do, excuse me, to Stephen. But he knows their plots. And so he waits until the middle of the feast when the city is packed with pilgrims from all over the world. Jews from all over the world that have come to the Feast of Booths. And now it's going to be very difficult to try to seize him with all of those there. Everyone is afraid to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. We see, we'll see that again in verse 15. Because the Sanhedrin has not given their qualification. They've not given their decision concerning him, whether he's the Messiah or not. And no one wants to come down on the wrong side of the Sanhedrin's decision. You don't want to say that he is the Messiah, then have the Sanhedrin come and say, no, he's an imposter. You get kicked out of the synagogue. But if the Sanhedrin says he is the Messiah, you certainly don't want to be the one who publicly said he's not the Messiah because then you're really in trouble. So everyone's afraid except Jesus. Because when he comes into Jerusalem in the middle of the feast, he doesn't come in with the crowds and just go to the various rituals. He goes straight to the temple and he sits down in the temple and he begins to publicly teach. And we saw last week that this is the first account we have in John that Jesus had publicly taught in Jerusalem. So the crowds, as they always do, begin coming to him to hear him teach. He's the only one without fear because he is ultimately in control of the situation. He, as we saw before, he is in control of his own schedule. He will determine when he goes to Jerusalem for the feast. He is operating on his father's timetable. And his father's timetable is that he will be crucified on Passover. Not Passover Eve, not a week later, but he will be our Passover lamb. And he will be crucified on that day. The very day that the Jews have fought so hard not to crucify him. He is determined that's the day he will be crucified. And his brothers can't speed him up. And Pilate can't slow him down. And the Jews can't stop him. So he has no fear whatsoever. And he's teaching here publicly. Now, beginning in verse 15. Follow along in your Bibles, please. 
The Jews then were marveling, saying, How has this man become learned, not having been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but from him who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know about this teaching, whether it is of God or I speak for myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you does the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses gave you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well, or I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. The Jews, and yet again, to exhaustion, let me explain who the Jews are. The Jews are the religious elites. These are the ones who consider themselves to be the very pinnacle of what it means to be a good faithful Jew. A good follower of Yahweh. A good worshiper of Yahweh. This is the Pharisees. These are the scribes. These are the doctors of the law. And and among them would be some Sadducees. But these are the ones who figure out we are the authorities for Israel. We know the word of God. And they hate Jesus. Because he's showing them up for what they are. And we'll see that again this evening. And they want to kill him. Because he's violating their rules, their regulations that they've added on to the word of God. He's cutting them aside to get right back to the word of God. If I can put it like this. He's cutting through traditions that God did not give in order to get back to God's word. And they're saying, how is, how is this man learned? Well, to be learned means to be learned in the word of God in the scriptures which for us we would call today the Old Testament they said how does this man know these things how has he become so learned how has he become so learned in the word of God having never been educated he's never been to one of our official rabbinical schools what we would call today a Bible institute or a Bible college or a seminary. <clears throat> you see, among the Jews, the trained rabbis, the ones who had received years of training at the hands of the scholars, these were the ones considered to be the qualified Bible teachers. But this man, is what they say in verse 15, this man opens and explains the word of God God's will better than the rabbis. And they're marveling. It's like when Jesus was 12 years old. He goes to his first Passover. He's sitting down in the temple. And Mary and Joseph find him sitting among the teachers. If I could put it like this, 
among the scholarly elite of Israel. The ones who would know the word of God better than anyone else. And Luke chapter 2 says, these teachers were astounded at his understanding and his answers at 12 years old. Hmm. Look at verses 16 and 17. So Jesus answered them, these people that are marveling at how he could be so adept at God's word. Jesus answered them and said, my teaching is not mine. But from him who sent me. Notice that the Jews in verse 15 were not talking to Jesus. When they were saying, how can this man know all this? He's, how can you be so learned? Learn it. How, having not been educated. They're not talking to Jesus. They're not saying to Jesus, how did you learn all this? They're talking to one another. And Jesus knows what they're talking about. And so he answers them. And he says, my teaching is not mine, but from him who sent me. My teaching about the kingdom of God. My teaching about me, myself. Isn't something that I've concocted up on my own. These aren't just my ideas. It's from him who sent me. And a little buzzer goes off in our brain when we read that. Him who sent me. Because that sounds familiar in John the previous chapters chapter 6 verse 38 Jesus says I have not come down from heaven to do my will but the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that of all he has given me I should lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of my Father who sent me. That everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So when he says, my teaching is from him who sent me, the Jews get it. They know who he's talking about. They're talking about, he's talking about his Father, And he has made it very plain in chapter 5 and verse 18 that he claims that God, Yahweh, whom they claim to worship, is his Father. So he says that my teaching, which you find so infuriating, which you find just ripping you out of the frame whenever I teach, that's not from me. It's from your God. The God of Abraham. The God of Isaac. The God of Jacob. The God of Moses. My teaching is from my father. Yahweh. So when Jesus. This uneducated carpenter. Claims that Yahweh is his father. He's claiming. That when he claims that Yahweh is his father. It's coming from Yahweh. When the Lord Jesus claims that he can give eternal life to whomever he wishes because he has life in himself. Just like the Father has life in himself. That teaching is coming from Yahweh. When the Lord Jesus Christ claims that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. That, that teaching is coming from Yahweh. 
But as he, in chapter 6 says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And also the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That is from Yahweh, your God. When Jesus claims that the Father appointed him to judge all mankind on the last day, that's coming from Yahweh, your God. When the Lord Jesus Christ, that the entire scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, testifies to him, to Jesus. That teaching is coming from Yahweh. When the Lord Jesus Christ claims that all should honor the Son, Jesus, just like they honor the Father, in exactly the same way they honor the Father, back in chapter 5, which means that all men should worship Jesus just like we worship the Father. That teaching is not from Jesus alone. That teaching is from your God, Jews. And when I heal a crippled man on the Sabbath, it's my Father who told me to heal that crippled man on the Sabbath. That's an answer. That's an answer. There's an unseen hook here though. When Jesus says, my teaching is not mine, but from him who sent me. You see, when the rabbis taught, their authority was based on the honored rabbis before them. When the rabbis taught, they would teach something and then say, as Rabbi Ben Judah said, and then they would quote this other rabbi. They relied on quotes to back up what they said. But rabbis are only men. They're not infallible. So they were relying on quotes about the word for their authority rather than on the word itself. Jesus' authority is not from the rabbis who came before him. Jesus' authority is from God himself and he makes it plain here. He says, your teaching is from the interpretations of men. My teaching is from him whom you claim is your God. He's making himself very popular. <laughs> and look at verse 17. If anyone is willing to do his will, that is God's will, he will know about the teaching, whether it is of God or if I speak for myself. And what he's saying here is the reason you don't recognize that what I'm saying about the kingdom of God and what I'm saying about my relationship to God and what I'm saying about me myself is because you're not willing to do God's will. Now he's talking to the Jews. He's talking to the clergy. He's talking to allegedly the best educated biblical scholars in all of Judaism. And he's saying the reason that you don't recognize that everything I'm teaching you is directly from heaven is because you're not willing to do God's will. Mm. If you had a genuine desire to please God, 
If you had a genuine desire to please God, you would recognize that my teaching is from God. Because he would open your eyes that my teaching is from him. This is why you can have liberal scholars that are such experts in the Greek New Testament. I mean, they, they sleep and eat Greek. Quane Greek, New Testament Greek. They can quote to you passages out of the Greek New Testament, and yet they're still unconverted. They're still lost. Because to them, it's just facts. It's just academics. They have no desire to do God's will. That's why church attenders and church members can sit week after week after week after week under sound preaching, explaining God's word, and still be unconverted. Because they have no desire, no, no heart desire to do God's will. To submit themselves to him. To submit themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. To admit that they're sinners needing to be saved. So he says the reason that you don't recognize what I'm saying is true is because you have no will to do God's will. Now look at verse 18. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. This should be self-evident when you're thinking about an average messenger. The messenger who seeks to glorify the one who sent him, he's going to be reliable. That's what it means that he is true. He's reliable. You can depend on him. He doesn't seek his own glory. He's seeking to be well-pleasing to the one who sent him. <laughs> and the Lord Jesus is the messenger of the Father. We see this in John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, when they come to him and say, are you the Christ? He says, no. <laughs> There's one coming after me that I'm not even fit to tie him or untie his shoes he is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I'm just a voice coming before him to make everything prepared for him so you'll recognize him. And when Jesus shows up, John the Baptist with his disciples points to the Lord Jesus and says, There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was all about glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Messiah. And the Lord Jesus is the same way about his Father. What is, how do he teach us how to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah, the true messenger wants to glorify him who sent him. And the messenger that does that is reliable. You can depend on him. There's no unrighteousness in him. There's no deceit in him. There's no ulterior motive in him. There's no disloyalty in him. But look at verse 19. And we do realize that Jesus is talking about himself here. Look at verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you does the law. Why do you seek to kill me? 
What Jesus says is, the true messenger, the real messenger, the reliable messenger, wants to glorify the one who sent him. And you can depend on him. And you're just the opposite. You're just the opposite from that, talking to the religious elites of Israel. You claim to be so devoted to Moses' law. You claim to faithfully obey the law. You claim that you are so outraged by any violation of the law. And yet none of you keeps the law. None of you does the law. None of you performs the law. You're a bunch of hypocrites. That's what he's saying. You claim to be God's messengers. But you're not reliable. You seek your own glory. In Mark chapter 12, he nails this to the wall. He's talking about the religious elites, the Jews, particularly the scribes. And he says, you want to go around in long robes so everyone will see your position. That would be if I showed up tonight in a collar. You want the best seats in the synagogues. I have to be careful with that one because I like to sit on the front row so I won't be disturbed. I think in a Baptist church, the best seats are considered the back row. But no, they want to be on the front row so everybody can see them. They want to be up front. They want to be sitting next to the ruler of the synagogue so everybody can see them there. You want respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Oh, yes, Dr. So-and-so, how are you today? Yes, I really appreciate that sermon last Sabbath. Yes. What did I preach on? I have no clue. But I really appreciated that sermon last Sabbath. Yes. You want respectful greetings in the marketplaces. You want the places of honor at the banquets. In other words, you're all about your glory. You're not seeking the glory of God. All you want is honor and glory for yourself. And he says, why do you seek to kill me? Is it because you think I violated the Sabbath? You're full of unrighteousness. In Mark 12, he also says about them, you devour widows' houses. You're renting a house to a widow. Her husband has just died. And because she's not able to gather up the monthly rent, you kick her out. And for a show, you make long prayers. Going on and on and on and on. So everybody will see just how spiritual you really are. You're a hypocrite. You're not a true messenger of God. You're all about yourself. You don't listen to the law of God. You have no mercy on the widows. You have no mercy on the orphans. And you're just drawing attention to yourself. So verse 20... When, he's, when he asked that question in verse 19, why do you seek to kill me? I mean, if you're such so indifferent to the law, and you claim I violated the law, why is it that I'm the one that you want to kill? And the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Now remember who the crowd is. These are the pilgrims that have come in from all over the world. They don't know like the people of Jerusalem do. That the Jews are seeking to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. So they, they are not aware of this plot. And so they say, you're talking like a madman. Like a demonized man. Who's seeking to kill you? Look at verse 21. 
Jesus answered them. And this is, <laughs> this is so often how it happens. You answer one person and it's someone else you're actually talking to. We're familiar with that. Jesus answers the crowd, but he's actually directing this to the Jews. I did one work and you all marvel. That one work was back in chapter 5. At the pool of Bethesda. Where he heals one man that he chose out of the whole multitude that needed healing. He heals one man that he's chosen, but he does it on the Sabbath. And that drove them wild. That he would dare to practice medicine on the Sabbath. He says, I have done one deed and you marvel. You marvel because I had the audacity to do that on the Sabbath. Now look at verse 22. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision. Not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but when I read that, and I see for this reason, I say, what reason? It just seems to pop up out of nowhere. But stick with me, and you'll see why the Lord Jesus says this. He says, for this reason, you circumcise a man on a Sabbath. Why would they circumcise a Jewish boy baby? It was for that Jewish boy baby's good. That he might be included in the covenant that God had made with Abraham. That that little Jewish boy baby would now be recognized as under the covenant. That he would be part of God's people under the protection of God. And that he would inherit the land. Remember the curse is if you're not circumcised as a Jewish male. You are to be cut off. From God's Israel. So you circumcise a little baby boy on the eighth day after he's born for his good. For his good. And on the Sabbath, or excuse me, you, on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. What's he talking about there? No, you're circumcised on the eighth day after you're born. But sometimes, and maybe often, that eighth day falls on a Sabbath, yeah. Hmm, what are you going to do? Are you breaking the Sabbath because you circumcised this baby on the Sabbath? And the answer is no. Because circumcision was given for your good. The Sabbath was given for our good. It's a day of rest from our normal work. From our normal labors. It's a day to have our minds refreshed. Our bodies refreshed. Our spirits refreshed. It's a day to remember that all we have. All we enjoy. God has provided it all. It's a day to remember his provision. It's not a burden. It's a blessing. It's not a punishment. But it's a promise. It's a promise that God will continue to provide. That God will give enough in six days to cover the seventh day. So that you don't have to work on that seventh day. You remember the manna in the wilderness? When God said, I'm going to give you manna. 
Now here's the rule. Every day, go out and pick up as much as you need for your family. Pick it up in the morning and eat it that day. If you get greedy and you decide I'm going to pick, pick up more than I need and I'm going to save it for tomorrow just in case there's no manna, no faith in God, then overnight that manna is going to breed worms and begin to putrefy and to stink. But on the sixth day, when you go out to get your manna, get enough for the seventh day as well. And you say, but if I leave it overnight, it's going to breed worms and putrefy and stink. No. On the sixth day, if you get enough for the next day, it'll still be fresh and good on the next day. I will provide in six days enough for all week. I'll provide on the sixth day enough for the seventh day. That's the promise. And he says, you know that. You know that the, the Sabbath was given for our good. I mean, if you have an ox that falls into a ditch, there's not one of you strict Sabbatarians, and I consider myself a Sabbatarian, there's not one of you strict Sabbatarians that won't go out there and, for mercy's sake, pull that ox out of a ditch. He says, for mercy's sake, on the Sabbath, every one of you will go into your stall and untie your donkey or your ox and lead it out and water it and then bring it right back. That's work. But yet, you know, the Sabbath was given for our good. And so you'll do that for mercy's sake. You will do good on the Sabbath. Now, why are you so upset with me that I did good on a Sabbath? Look what he says down here. He says, you circumcise on the Sabbath. Verse 22, and you got that little aside there. That Moses gave you circumcision, but it's not actually from Moses. It's from Abraham. It's from the fathers. But it's put in the law through Moses at Sinai. He says, on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man, even though it's the Sabbath. Because you know that the Sabbath is for doing good. You know that the Sabbath is for our good. And so you're quite willing for the good of the baby to circumcise him on the Sabbath. <laughs> now there's some irony here. The irony is that he says, you're willing to circumcise a man on the Sabbath, which makes a man less of a man than he was before he was circumcised. You're actually removing something from a man. And yet, I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath. You'll perform that surgery on the Sabbath for his good, because the Sabbath is for our good. I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath. You see the irony there? So why are you angry with me? Why are you wanting to kill me? I'm doing the same sort of good that you do. And yet you want to kill me. Hmm. So we come down to verse 24. Jesus says to them then, Do not judge according to appearance. But judge with righteous judgment. He's bringing them back to get back to the Word of God. 
come back to the word of God. You judge me because I healed the man on the Sabbath and did good to that man on the Sabbath. Because it appeared to you that I was violating the Sabbath. But if you go back into God's word, there's no place in God's word that he says you can't heal someone on the Sabbath. It just appears to you because I'm violating your tradition. I'm violating the way it's always been done. I'm violating what you think God would want to have done rather than what he says he wants done. So when he says here uh, in verse 24, do not judge. Actually, what he's saying there is stop judging. It's the negative may with a present active imperative, which is to be read, stop doing what you're doing. You're judging me because of what you think I've done. Judge me according to what God's word says. Hmm. There's an application there for us, isn't it? Think about our brother Alan. Our brother Alan takes care of his invalid mother along with his brothers and sisters. So they all have days that they spend the night with their mom. One of the days or one of the nights that Alan spends with his mom is Wednesday. That's the night they assign to him. So we see Alan Sunday morning. We see it, we hear Alan's prayers. We ask him questions because he's so so he's learned. He's self-taught. So we ask him questions. We rejoice in his fellowship. We rejoice in, in, in the spirit of Christ that just glows out of him. And then we come on Wednesday night to prayer meeting and Alan's not there. We say, hmm. Looks like Alan doesn't think much about prayer meeting. Hmm. I guess Alan just doesn't think that corporate prayer is that important. We judge according to appearance. Interesting. There's no law in God's word that says you will gather for corporate prayer on Wednesday evenings. But there is a law that says honor your father and your mother. Alan is not violating any law. Alan's not being indifferent to prayer. Alan would love to be with us on Wednesday evenings. And some Wednesday evenings he is able to be there. But he is keeping God's will. He's keeping God's word by honoring his mother. Don't judge according to appearance. Judge with right judgment. And that's where we end tonight. That's the Lord's word to us. Once again, the Lord Jesus Christ has proven that he is the only reliable interpreter of God's law. And that he is not only the only reliable interpreter of God's law, that he is utterly reliable as the interpreter of God's law. And once again, we're reminded tonight that we are to enjoy the Sabbath for what it is, the Lord's Day. And that we must evaluate one another, what we see people doing or not doing. Not according to what we think is right and wrong. 
but according to what God's word says is right and wrong. And we're going to stop there tonight. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we can't help but marvel at your wisdom. We can't help but marvel at at your humor when you confound these self-righteous religious types who want to kill you. We pray that you will keep us glued to your word. We pray that you will keep us glued to you. And that we'll always look to you to show us what you want done, what is right, and what is proper. Because you alone are the word of God. Now to you be glory as we live this week, as we look to you this week, as we walk before you this week, that you may glorify the Father. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. And we are dismissed. <laughs>